Good morning, everyone. My name is Don, and I'm always happy to be here with you as I get to share some of the teaching responsibilities here. I want to ask you a question this morning, especially directed toward the men, and you know who you are. Can you remember the first movie you watched that you cried? I know you don't want to admit to that, so don't. Maybe you just, at least a little tear. Do you remember the first movie? Let me tell you the first one I ever saw that did it. It, it was a made-for-television movie in the early 70s <clears throat> called Brian's Song. Some of you are old like me. <laughs> Brian's Song. Did you hear the men kind of go, Rrr. did you hear that? That was great. That was, a, that was a tearjerker. Um, it was, it was back in the days when the Vietnam War was just ending. I think I was, I, was, I know I was still in high school, trying to play high school football. And uh, it was about the relationship between arguably one of the best running backs to ever pick a pigskin and run for the Chicago Bears, Gail Sayers, and another running back named Brian Piccolo. And uh, these guys came into the league about the same time both highly touted and very competitive for the same position of, of running back. Gail Sayers was a much better running back than Brian Piccolo. Gail Sayers was African-American. Brian Piccolo was an Italian white guy. In those days, this is the culture that we lived in. Even in the professional football ranks, when a team would go and travel to another city, the white players would stay in one hotel and the black players would stay in another. They were not allowed to be in the same hotel. Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers was probably the first interracial roommates in professional football. So these two guys that were so competitive not only became teammates, they became friends, best of friends, so that when Gail Sayers went down with a knee injury, it was Brian Piccolo who benefited from that, got all the playing time, started to pad the statistics, but was the number one cheerleader for Gail Sayers to come back. He helped him rehab and spent hours with him saying, you can do this, you can do this, keep at it, keep at it. When Sayers finally did re return, they decided they wanted to make room for both of them in the backfield, and so Brian Piccolo became a fullback, even though he's very undersized, and they shared running the ball together. It was very successful for the very first half of the season until somewhere in the midseason, Piccolo just said, I can't take this anymore, and he was too tired to finish the game out, and he took himself out of the game. Come to find out that he had cancer, a very fast-acting, um, spreading all over him, so that by the end of the season, he was, he was almost bedridden. At the end of the season, Gail Sayers received this award from the uh, sports writers in Chicago, the George S. Hallis most Courageous Football Player Award. He was excited because they had planned for him and his wife and Brian and his wife to go to New York and accept the award. But by this time, cancer had struck Piccolo down so much that he couldn't, he couldn't make the travel. And that's when Gil Sayers went to receive the, the award. But he basically said this, you flatter me with this award, but you need to know that I'm not deserving of the most courageous player award that Brian Piccolo, my roommate, is. The battle he is fighting with cancer is much bigger than the battle I fight on the football field. 
And he's been so courageous. And so I accept this on his behalf. And I will be delivering, as soon as this is over, back to Chicago, I will deliver this award to him. And he said these words. I love Brian Piccolo. I would love for you to love him too. And tonight when you hit your knees in prayer, please ask God to love him too. I'm laying on the floor in my living room watching this and I'm like, whoa, whoo. I'm, I'm really moved and I'm looking around and my mom and dad are both in there and, and I'm looking over at my mom and she's got tears coming down and I, I, don't, I don't even know what to do. She doesn't like football. She doesn't, she's, she's just sitting there and uh, she's all moved by it. And um, I'm wondering, I don't want them to see me because at that time our conversation was usually monosyllabic. You know, I, when they asked me a question, I answered it with a grunt, a groan, or one syllable. Um, uh-huh was a full sentence. And, um, and all of a sudden, here I am crying like this little baby. And, and, uh, and I'll tell you why it moved me. Up until that time, I, I rarely had ever heard a man say to another man, I love you. I don't know that I'd ever heard that. Hardly ever heard it, a man say that to a woman or his own wife. That wasn't said a lot in my home. That moved me. And because of the time of seasons we were in in our, in our nation, I, I had never heard a black man say to a white man, I love you. Nor had I ever heard a white man say to a black man, I love you. In fact, what was so weird as, as you listen to the story of these guys, Gail Sayers would say, I, I grew up basically not hardly even knowing a, a person of the other race, not alone loving them. And Brian Piccolo said, I, I, had, I had no friends. I, I knew nobody that was black. Not only loved them. And here they are, not only telling each other they love each other, they're acting it out. They're, they're showing that love so that when Gail Sayers brought that award to, to Brian Piccolo. He also said, along with the award, I'm giving a pint of blood to help you out. I'd give more if I could. I'll tell you the other thing that was interesting to me. I had never up to that point seen my dad cry. Never. I mean, as he got older, he cried a lot. He'd cry at Chick-fil-A commercials when the <laughs> cows were, you know, trying to get to eat more chicken kind of stuff. But at that point, he, I never said something. His mom died. Grandma died. And I remember at the funeral, I was just a little kid. And everybody's crying and bawling and everything. And I, and I afterwards, I said, Dad, did, did you cry at Grandma's funeral? And he goes, no. No, I, I was trying to be strong for everybody. Did you cry at all? And he goes, well, a couple days ago it kind of got to me, so I went out in the orange grove and I, I cried and got it all out. And ever, ever since then, I'm okay. I go, oh, all right. And in my head, I'm going, well, yeah, I mean, you know, men don't cry and they surely don't let people see them cry. And here I'm on the living room floor crying and my mom's crying. 
And I, and I look out of the corner of my eye because I don't really know what to do with my dad. And I think, I don't know, he had wore glasses, so I think I saw a tear. And then I heard him blow his nose. And I knew he's crying too. And I thought, oh my, the power of love. It's amazing. The power of love to move a heart. The power of love that is stronger than the color of our skin. The power of love to transform somebody, to be different, is amazing. Back in those days, there was a a very popular song that was going around. What the world needs now is love. Sweet love. Yeah, not just love, sweet love. And all that's true. A couple years later, I was in college and got acquainted with a little book uh, by a guy named Francis Schaeffer, who was kind of a weird dude. He wore knickers all the time with long socks and a turtleneck. And I'm going, that's, that's kind of weird at that time. But then after a while, I'm going, that's pretty cool, really. I mean, everybody else is wearing suit and ties all the time, and he's rocking knickers. And, you know, I'm like, that's like wearing sweatpants. Yeah, I didn't ever get away with that in the 70s. I don't know. But he, he was a, a very astute theologian, and he had a little book called The Mark of a Christian. And we started passing that around and some of the, the friends that we had trying to figure out what's it really mean to follow Christ? What's it really mean to be a Christian? And he started listening. Very simple book, but very deep. He said, you know, following Christ has nothing to do with the symbols that we like to kind of hang on to. And he was talking about like, you know, wearing crosses and that kind of thing. And we've, we've taken that to an extreme now in the last 30, 40 years that wasn't even there back then where, you know, jewelry like, a cross is around lots of people's necks, but you don't, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a great follower of Christ. Now we wear T-shirts that emblazon these, you know, these, these great um, statements about God or about our faith or um, maybe a bumper sticker. Have you, have you recognized yet that not everybody with a Christian bumper sticker is really that Christian? <laughs> or today, tattoos, you know, you got your favorite verse of Scripture tattooed on your bicep or... On your wrist, Old Testament on the left, New Testament on the right. You know, <laughs> he said it's not symbols. It's not all those symbols. Those are great, but it's not symbols. They said that it's not even the book we carry. Whoa. And it's not the doctrine we embrace, the theology we grab onto and adhere to. He said the mark of a Christian is that we love one another. The mark of a Christian is love. And we got to thinking, wow, there's got to be power in this thing called love. I can remember as a teenager around the campfire, a guy with a guitar, and we would sing, you know, um, do Lord, oh, do Lord, and it only takes a spark. And then we'd get real serious and we'd sing, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And as the 70s started to unfold, that little crazy course got into the big people's church. And then with the organ and choir members, we all know we are Christians by our love. Because the truth was so true and so real. They'll know we are Christians by our love. We're in the book of John today, the 13th chapter, for the, the scripture about new stuff. And today we're talking about the new command. Let me just introduce you to John in this way. 
it, like all the gospels, there's this wide sweeping thing of, of uh, you know, from the birth of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus. And, and, and John takes it pre-birth all the way through the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it's going pretty rapidly and it's going um, event after event and sign after sign, miracle after miracle. And then all of a sudden it just comes to this screeching halt in chapter 13. And for the next four chapters through, verse, through chapter 17, it, it just focuses on one night, one night, the Thursday before the crucifixion, up in the upper room with the disciples. And Jesus is pouring out his heart. And he is letting them know what is so dear to him that he only has a few hours left with him before he's leaving. And in chapter 13, that very first verse, we catch a glimpse of the heart of Jesus when it says, it was just before Passover, the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Having loved them, looking at his disciples, knowing about this world, he loved them all this time, but now he shows them the full extent of his love. Some versions say he loved them to the end. That little Greek term that's used there is, is really a, a, a quantitative statement that is like to the end, to the farthest reaches, to, to eternity, if you will. I, I've loved you. You've seen my love day by day by day, but here's the, here's the extent of my love. It, it goes forever and ever and ever and ever. You can't, ever. you can't fathom how much you're loved. It's like if we were getting in this little argument about how much we, I love you to the moon and back. Oh, I, I love you to Mars and back. Well, I love you to Pluto and back. Jesus would say, I love you to eternity and beyond. You can never tap out on my love. It's that much. It's that big. But there's also this qualitative section about that word. Not only how far-reaching it is, but I, I love you to the uttermost. I love you to the maximum. I love you to the full capacity of divine love. If you take the eternal God and all the love that God has in his essence of who he is and you pack it into one punch and you place it into these finite beings here on, on, on this world of, of humanity, you, you can't imagine the love of God that's in the full extent of God's love is laid out. These four chapters are some of the most intimate words of Jesus to the ones he loved the most. But they are some of the most magnanimous words of love. The biggest description of God's love in all of Scripture. The full extent of God's love. Wouldn't you love to be in a room where the full extent of God's love is unveiled and you're the recipient of it? That's this upper room. And as he, as he shows how much he loves these guys, they're reclining around the table getting ready for dinner. And Jesus gets up and he, he removes his outer garment and he goes to a bowl and he pours some water and he goes around the table and he washes the feet of every single one of his disciples. He looks into the eyes of the one in just a few short hours who will deny him. He looks into the eyes of the one in just a few short hours who will betray him. 
He looks into the eyes and he washes the feet of the one in just a few short days. will doubt him. And he goes around this table, weaknesses and all, with the fullest extent of God's love shown through by washing their feet. Then he puts his coat back on and he reclines around the table and he looks around and he says, basically, did you see what I did? Yeah. Well, do you know who I am? Yeah, you're our Lord and our teacher. He said, right, yeah. And if I'm the Lord and I'm the teacher and I wash your feet, you ought to, and let me just call time out for a minute because you've heard the story before. You know the answer to this. If I'm the Lord and teacher, I've washed your feet. If I'm the Lord and teacher, you ought to, hang on just a second. If you've never heard this before, what you probably would think is, you ought to wash my feet. I'm the Lord and teacher. I'm God. I'm the son of God. The fullest extent of God's love has just been unleashed to you. Can you remember what has ever happened when people catch a, a glimpse of the, of the grace and the love and the beauty of God, the devotions they show? You remember just a couple days ago, there was a woman who walked into our dinner party a woman of ill repute that was so taken up with the grace of, of Christ that she started to bawl and cry and her tears just flooded over him and, and she washed his feet with, his tear, with her tears. Took down her hair and dried his feet with her, with her hair and then anointed his feet with the most expensive oil that she had. And Jesus was just loving it. He was just soaking it in. This is worship. This is what I'm wanting from you people. And, and they're going, oh, sitting around the table, golly, ah, oh, we missed it. Jesus, this was, my, oh, this was my chance. This was my chance to show my devotion just like that. This was my chance to wash the feet of my teacher and my Lord. Ah, oh. I mean, who wouldn't do that? If you have the opportunity to wash the feet of the Son of God, ah. Oh. I'd line up for that one, for him, for him to see my heart and how thankful I am and how devoted I am. I'd line up for that. That's a worship at its best. But he doesn't say that. If I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you in turn ought to wash the feet of one another. It's like they went from to, who? Oh. Him? Who? And then he says, and this is our verse for today, in verse 34 of chapter 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you are my, my disciples. If you love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. A new command, a new command. I mean, what's new about that? I mean, they've heard from the very beginning of their, of their life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. But he's not talking about, here's a command, love me better, love me more, love me, love me. 
Here's the new command. And it's not that new. It's not like they've never heard the word love before and pointed at someone else. Why is it new? It's new for a couple different reasons. One, evidently, they haven't heard it yet. From their life and from their demonstration, hello, I've been with you for three years trying to get this across to you. Here, let me just try it this way. Here's a new thing for you, all right? Love one another, because you're not doing a very good job of it. You're fighting, you're bickering among yourselves. You're trying to decide who's the greatest in the kingdom. You're trying to decide who sits next to the throne when it's all said and done. You're trying to decide whose mom loves their son more than the other. You're, you're fighting in, for prominence and prestige and first place. And you won't even get up and wash one another's feet. Let me give you a new command. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Love one another. Love one another. If you're, if you're coming from the Jewish religion at that time, this is new to you. Love one another. The tone of Judaism at that, that, that time was dictated by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were self-righteous. They looked down their nose on people. They were very judgmental. They would, they would treat you well if you were equal to them. But if you were an outsider, they didn't want to have anything to do with you. If you were a sinner and you even touched them, they'd have to go clean themselves all up again because you defiled them. They were known for their legalism, not their lovelism. <laughs> Those days they had like 611 laws, 611 commands. And Jesus says, here, let me give you a, a new commandment. It's like, oh, yeah, we need a new commandment like we need a hole in the head. 611, Jesus. Well, now you got 612. And this is the most important one. Love one another. Love one another. It's a new commandment because Jesus takes it and he raises the bar on it higher than it's ever been before. What you thought was love is not even close to the love that Jesus shows. When he says, as I've loved you, let's take it up because that's how I want you to love one another. Not how you're used to loving one another, but as I, I loved you. That's the standard now. It's different. Think, think about love in our own terms. The love that, that we defined before Jesus and the way we define love with Jesus. Love's an interesting thing. Love, for the most part, before Jesus, we know about love. It's an emotion. I, I feel it. I feel good. I love stuff that feels good, makes me feel good. I love people that make me feel good. It's, it's an emotion. It's, it's, I get just a little giddy <laughs> thinking about it. Ooh, I get bumps all over. I love tacos. I mean, really. I, I love them. I, I love baseball. I like the Diamondbacks, but I love the Dodgers. I, don't judge me, but I love the Dodgers. I just love them. I love them. I love my dog. I lo most of the time. I, I love I love my wife. I do. More than I dog, actually. In fact, I fell in love with I, I fell. I fell in love with my wife. It was like, whoa. I saw her, whoa, off, off, the, off the edge I went. I fell in love. And here's the weird thing. She fell in love with me. She was smitten with me. Eventually, took a little, <laughs> took a little work, but we got there. I know the day. I know the day it happened. At least the day I recognized it. 
we were at her home church and we were playing volleyball. And every church picnic, we'd always play volleyball. And I'm standing next to this guy named Milo Bowder, who's a developer of the whole eastern Washington city that we lived in. He's a chairman of the board. He was a volleyball fanatic. And he always, Don, get us the best team so we can win. And so I, I, I'd try to you know, stack the deck. And I had Lori there because we just started dating. And, uh, and she was a pretty good volleyball player. And so, you know, this is good. And we're playing for a while. And we're, you know, we're blocking and spiking and all that kind of stuff. And the ball finally comes. And it comes right to Lori and hits her in the head. She is oblivious to the ball even coming to her. It just pops. And Milo looks at me like, you wanted her on our team? And people start laughing. Hey, Don, she was looking at you. That's why she missed the ball. She was looking at you. Ah, 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 ah. And I'm going, yeah, isn't that great? And then Milo goes, no, Don, she was. She was. She was looking at you. She was watching you. She didn't care about ball. She was watching. And he goes, Don, I think she's falling for you. And I'm going, yeah. I think she has. Now, that's weird for you to hear right now. But you got to know, this was like 40 years ago. I had hair. I was a lot lighter in weight. And um, I, could e- I could even be charming and nice and caring, especially at dating, you know, for an hour or two at dinner. I could. And she fell in love with me. It was an all emotion. It was just boom. But because of Jesus... Love is more than just an emotion. Love, love becomes deeper than it. It's still emotional, but it's, it's, de- it's a choice. It's a commitment. It's a, it's a covenant that comes. It's like Jesus loved us type stuff. So that even though things don't necessarily make me feel good or people don't necessarily make me feel good, I still act lovingly to them because I'm loving them like Jesus loved me. And in our marriage, almost 40 years ago now when we got married, we took some vows that expressed that kind of choice and that kind of commitment. Now i got to tell you, I think there's still emotion going on with her to me. I, I don't see her just staring at me anymore. <laughs> dreamy, you know, just, oh, isn't he so sweet and dreamy? I, I just, I'm sure it happens. I just don't, my eyes aren't as good as they once were, but I, I'm sure it still happens. But more than that is, is her commitment and her, her choice to continue to love me and her choice to, to love me in this covenant relationship, no matter what has happened. And about seven years ago, I've told you this before, I had a, a, an accident, an injury that, that was spinal cord thing, and my world turned upside down. Everything's new normal. But now it's not just my world that's turned upside down. It's her world that's turned upside down. All our dreams, all our, our, our way of thinking of what life would be like, different. There's a new normal now. And I, I told my story a few years ago here, and I had somebody from Mountain Park come up to me and said, hey, you know, um, I'd like to meet your wife. And I introduced him, and he, and he just started, well, you, you are a very special woman, and you're just going on and on and looking at it. And he goes, I, I just want you to know, not nearly as severe stuff happened to me in my life, and, and my wife left me. And you have stayed with him through it all. And I just think you're a hero for doing that. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, you know what? She is. 
She never signed up for that. It doesn't feel good at all. But she chooses me with the love of Christ. She stays with me even though our, our, our future looks different. Even though her normal is different along with my normal. That's the love of Christ. The love of Christ, before the love of Christ, love is optional. I, I choose to give love here, and I, if I don't like you, I, I, I'm going to withhold it. If you're rude to me, I'm going to withhold it. I'm not going to give it. It's, it's optional. But with, with Christ, it's, it's more than, than that. It's, it's, a, it's a mandate. It's, a, it's an expectation. It's an essential about who we are. This, this tells me how high up love is because he wouldn't command it if we would just do it naturally. If we just naturally acted with that kind of love, he wouldn't have to say, hey, I need you to kind of wake up here because you, you've got a standard to live up to. It's the way I loved you and you can't do this on your own. So boom, listen up because here's how I want you to love. It's, it's bigger than, it is so distinctive of what our world knows about love that people will see that love in you and they will know you follow Jesus, just by, just by the way you love one another. That's how different it is. And if you miss it, you miss it. You've missed it big time. Paul kind of advances that a little bit. He says, you know, I, I could speak with tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I'm like a clanging cymbal and just a big gong making a bunch of noise. I could have the gift of prophecy. I could fathom mysteries, and I could fathom all knowledge. If I had enough faith, I could move mountains. But I don't have love. I, I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. I could give everything I have to the poor. I could let my body be burned up as a martyr. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he starts listening. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Love is, does not keep a record of wrongs. He just goes on and on and on so that every time it's an option that I, I don't fall into love, I turn into love. Every time I'm, I'm in this relationship, whether it's a person in church, whether it's my wife, or my kids, with somebody I know or don't know, I, I choose how I'm going to love. I could choose to not be patient, but the love of Christ tells me I should, that love is patient, so I need to be a little more patient. That's not natural for me, but I need to choose to try to live with more patience. I need to live with kindness. I need to lean into kindness rather than unkindness. I need to, to recognize that I, it, I, I, want to, I want to be angry, but it's not easily angered. I want to back off. I, I, want, I don't want to keep a record of wrong. I don't want to be self-seeking. It's not about me. It's about that other person. And I, I, I don't fall into that with feeling. I turn into it because that's what Jesus calls me to do. And that's the way Jesus loved me with this full extent of God's love. So that our marriage is not 50-50. That would be before the love of Christ. You do your 50, I'll do my 50. What's fair is fair. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You're nice to me, I'm nice to you. You're not nice to me. No, with the love of Christ, it's 100%, 100%. Paul put it like this. He said, if, if you're going to look at it this way, it's, it's mutual submission in reverence to Christ. And he looked at women and he said, women, what that means is you submit to your husband like the church submits to Jesus. And husbands are going, yeah, yeah, let, her, let, her, let them have it. And he goes, listen, Bozo, let me tell you. That means you are to 
sacrificially love her. That means you're willing to die for her. That means agape love, whether she deserves it or not. You throw it all on the line for her. And you just got to know in the first century, the Roman world and the Greek world, it was more twisted than, than what we face today. It was, it was crazy. Men had no respect for the, their wives. Wives were good for two things, having children and raising children. All their identity, their sexual conquest were outside the marriage. That's where they look for their fulfillment. For, for Paul to say to the women, you need to respect this guy, they'd say, why in the world would we do that? And for Paul to say to the men, you need to love her and, and sacrificially love her. Why? It's a commodity. If she doesn't like it, I'll get another one. Easy enough. One of the the greatest distinctive attractions to the early church for pagans in those days was the way they loved one another. It was their families. It was their marriages. Because they're saying, I'm 100% in this. 100 and 100. I'm giving it all. Because that's the way Jesus loved me. It's not about me. It's about others. Love one another. Now, most of us, when we think that, it, we think not as a command. We think of this is like extra credit. I mean, the love like that, that's extra credit. So you're like, for those of you that are looking for extra credit, this is a good thing. It's like, oh, I love Jesus so much. Jesus forgave me all my sins. I'm so devoted to him. I would wash his feet in a heartbeat. What more can I do? What more can I do to show my love? What more can I do to devote and worship? What more? Well, you can love somebody that's not very lovely. Well, no, I'm not talking about that. I mean, I'm a, it's extra, some other kind of extra credit because I don't, I don't want to go there. I, you know, like, no, Jesus said, anybody can love those who love you, love you already. That's what the tax collector's line is. You've heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. That's another level. I love him so much. I love him so much. Oh, I give every, I, I come to church every week. Uh, oh, well, I, almost every, well, once a month. I come to church once a month and I sing, pro, well, I sing if I like the song, but I sing and I give, if it kind of moves me, I'll, I'll give a little bit at least. And, and serve and I serve God. I serve. Well, I, I don't really serve. I went to the information meeting last week, but I, but what more can I do? What more, what, what's some extra? You can love your wife unfairly sacrificially. Well, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what I had in mind. That's extra credit. No. Paul says, if you can do all these other things, but you, you miss love, you missed it. You just plain missed it. It's a new commandment because it's, the bar is raised up to the love of Jesus. And it's a new commandment because your capacity, because of Jesus, is expanded. Your capacity to love is now greater because he lives in you. Your capacity to love. Paul says, may the love of God be shed abroad in your heart. May the love of God be complete in you. First John talks about when he lives in us, his love is complete in us. So that if you say you know God, but you don't love your neighbor, you don't know God. It's a pretty strong word. A commandment. So here's my prayer for you. For us, 
in this church. That somehow we can get a glimpse of the difference we can make if we would actually put this, this commandment to life. If we would actually love like Christ loves. Can you imagine the difference it would be in your office and your workplace? Can you imagine the difference it would be in your marriage if you loved like this? Can you imagine the difference it would be in our community? That if the love of Christ was bigger than the color of our skin, greater than our our socioeconomic levels, greater than outsiders and insiders, can you imagine what the church, can you imagine how different this church would be if every one of us actually lived this kind of love? Can you imagine what it would be when, when you move over to the new church and people walk in the door and they experience not just people of the new building, which is going to become an old building eventually, but they experience people of the new commandment. And then all of a sudden they say, the way those people love, the way they love, they got to be followers of Christ. There's something different about that group. Here's one last thing. I think it's pretty clear. If we miss it, if we miss love, nothing else matters. It, nothing else really matters. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 13 with this. Now abide these three. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Do you stand with me? As the worship team comes on and we sing this last song, Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would, you would shed your, bro, your, your love abroad in this congregation, that hearts would be expanded through you, that you would live in each heart here and your love would be made complete in homes, in families, in marriages, in this church. And may this community start to shine differently with the love of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.